Yeah, we're recording everywhere. All right, cool. All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Rob Wallace. This is the Zero Noise Podcast, where we engage in progressive discussion about hip music, life, and everything in between with our guests. The podcast is brought to you by Grove Studios, the 24-7 artist and production workspace, whether rehearsing for your next show, producing a new song, doing a podcast, or shooting a video. Grove Studios is set up for the independent creator. Right now, Grove is offering subscriptions that can help you get your project or next creation cracking. To learn more, visit grovestudios.space. This podcast is produced by Project Plugin, Mind State Marketing. What up, Max? What up? Share with all streaming platforms through Captivate. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe whenever, wherever you are hearing or seeing the podcast. My life's work is to lift music and hip-hop specifically as both the historical subtext and the product of American culture a medium of liberation and the soundtrack for the search for black freedom collectively and individually. The hip hop album is as a primary source of critical discourse about life in America by those who create it. Therefore, we will not only discuss albums that are commonly regarded as classics or close to classics. I want to know about the music that changed the way our guests thought. Along the way, we will explore how music speaks to who we are and who we desire to be. Art is not valuable if it does not challenge, if it does not ask, if it does not respond. We acknowledge that music decorates time as art decorates space. I ask dope people to visit with me, talk about who they are, who they have been, and what they do. I also ask them to be ready to discuss an album that played a role in them becoming them. You will not hear the music we will discuss for many reasons during the podcast, but you will never hear it the same afterwards. Therefore, this is a music podcast, but it is a people's podcast. And today, the person is A.G. Harris. Esquire. Am I supposed to call you Esquire, brother? No, you don't have to say Esquire. <laughs> also known as Ajahasara. That's that's not No, bad. pronounce it. Ajahasara. Ajahasara. Yes, sir. And the album is Don Columinati, The Seven Day Theory by Machiavelli, also known as Tupac. Yes, sir. What up, though? How you doing, man? I'm chilling. We got a lot to talk about. Yeah. We're going to whiz through a lot of stuff real quick. It's all good. I know how you go. Who is Ajaha Sarah? Well, that's a pen name that I use because um, I'm also a poet. I'm a writer. I've been writing poetry for about since 2004. And um, I decided to put some poems together recently, put out a book, a short chat book on one of the areas I talk about. Right, which is um, love and relationships. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's what my first book is about. But I write about a lot of different things. Okay. But the Ajaha Sarah is my pen name that I use. So who is A.G. Harris? That's the lawyer, Alfred Harris. And uh, I've been practicing law for maybe 20 years. Pretty long time, actually. And I've been focused on, you know, music and intellectual property, contracts, business advisor. So I've always had some private clients. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll probably be doing that for a long time, too. So mm. I, I go back and forth, although I'm focusing more energy on the poetry right now. Mm. So the entire time that you've practiced law, you've practiced law in Detroit. That's correct. You are also a resident that's correct. Why didn't you leave? 
Well, I'm originally from Flint. Michigan. Absolutely. I moved to Detroit um, to go to law school. I went to Wayne State. And um, I love the city. I actually love the idea even before I moved here. I, I love the idea of living around majority black population. It was just something that was different for me. I liked the way it felt. And so I always wanted to live in Detroit. As funny as that sounds, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I, it was I, the I bottom remember. line for me. You know I remember. I, mean? I remember you moved from Manor yeah. over to where you at now. Yeah. We helped you yeah. that day. And I just think about so many people who have achieved the level of success that you have and the level of status that you have as far as your employment moved to Birmingham, moved to Southfield, moved to such and such, Farming the Hill, moved, you know. So that's why I asked that question. Why did you stay rooted? No, that's fair. right there. Although I don't look at stuff, you know, I don't look at status and stuff like that. I, I, I understood. Um, so that's that's never been a, and then my wife is, you know, born and raised in Detroit. Right. And, um, you know, I'm, I feel, I like the city. And I'm, you know, I'm comfortable, you know, even though it get wild, you know, it get rowdy. Mm -hmm. But um, we come from, we come from that That's environment. Where we come from. So I'm glad you said it, that. It is what it is. So let's talk about growing up in Flint yes, in the 1990s. Now, you you was 80s. In the 80s, <laughs> you came out a little bit before I did, but you grew up in Beecher. No, did no. Did you grow up in Beecher? I didn't grow up in Beecher. Your pops lived but in But my Beecher. family is... All over Beecher. Beecher. Right. But I grew up all over Flint, man. My brother always says he loved our childhood. He loved growing up in Flint. I did, too. What was it about Flint too. that was so special to you coming up? Yeah. Other than it being home, obviously. You know, I don't know if it's because it's so small that um, it wasn't a lot of drama. From my perspective, it wasn't a lot of drama, even though Flint was wild. It wasn't a lot of drama going on randomly. You know what I'm saying? Right. So we were able to do everything from play sports and, you know, participate with, you know, my, my upbringing in Flint, I will say this. Um, and I think about this. I've been thinking about it for years and I used to think about it when I was at Western. But, you know, our high school, Central was an integrated high school. Right. So it was 50-50. And it was a lot of interacting between black and white kids back then. It wasn't a big deal. Right. You know, it wasn't no issues at that particular school. It, it wasn't necessarily like that at Northwestern or Northern. But I remember experiencing that at Central. And when I would go, when I went away to school, you know, to see kids that had never interacted with a black dude before, it just, it surprised me. You know what right. I'm saying? Like, you, so you experienced that. So I, it made me look back on that and I don't know, I don't want to say appreciate, but just understand how that can affect right. a young kid coming up. Right. Um, Cause it wasn't any, we didn't really have no drama right. going on. So maybe that's just being blessed though. Maybe favor is, is major. Maybe that's just being blessed. It is. It is. I, I agree. I went to central and we got a chance to kick it with the kids who was growing up in East village over mm -hmm. by Pierce, mm -hmm. you know, really by central. And, you know, also, you know, be with the kids from the region. Yes, sir. Be with the kids from the east the side space. over by Angelo's <laughs> yes, and all sir. that. Yes, sir. So I, I absolutely agree. It was, a, it was a special place. 
But I love Beecher. I know you do. <laughs> Cold Water Road and all that oh, was man. was that was that was it, that was way away from us. And for us, that seemed far. And it's <laughs> That's funny. funny. It's funny. Like, that is you know, funny. we used to be able to drive from Dorton Lippincott <laughs> right. to DuPont over by Sirius Sounds and all that. I know you and that was like 15 minutes. That was the other side of town. Right. Or even go out to like Carpenter. Right, right, right. But once you pass Carpenter. Like I'll buy Hammity and all that. Yeah, oh, no. yeah. See, I lived out there. We lived out right. there. We lived in Beecher. We right. lived on the north side. We right. lived on the south side. We lived on the west side. Right. We lived in Grand Blank. Right. So we lived all over Flint. Shout out to Beecher, man. Oh, Shout man. out to Beecher. Shout out to Chris, Crystal Campbell from Beecher. I got some real good yes. friends from my this Harris family, Beecher. There you go. Yes, sir. So um I want to talk a little bit about the law passing the bar. You know, I'm trying to do my thing. Gotcha. And I can only imagine, well, I could only imagine back then the degree of preparation that went into preparing for the bar. Gotcha. Or whatnot. Um, I did some reading about black men in the legal. And I had a hard time finding the specific percentage of black men that are lawyers. Gotcha. Um, you might know better than me, but the American Bar Association said 5% of all attorneys are black. Mm. 13% of the population is black in America, while 38% of prison inmates are black. Mm. Um, can you talk a little bit about your experience? Um, I know you just haven't done entertainment law. I know you've done some other things. Can you, know, you talk a little bit about your experience in the legal realm? Well, when I first started practicing, I went off on my own. Um, I was working with an entertainment attorney part-time. And then I went off on my own and that on my own, you know, I was open to doing more than just entertainment. So I did a little bit of everything. It included criminal representation or civil litigation, you know, whatever. I had experience in employment discrimination. So I did a little bit of everything. Um, but I quickly realized that if you're not serious as an attorney, as a criminal attorney, then I don't think you should be representing individuals as their attorney in court. So if you're not focused on being a criminal attorney specifically, I don't think you can give them the best legal representation. That's just, that was my opinion mm -hmm. that I formed real quick. And so maybe after a year and a half, maybe two years, I just stopped, stopped doing the criminal representation period. Um, and I don't know the, I actually don't know the percentages about, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, um, it's, it doesn't surprise me, right. but I don't pay attention to the to the ebbs and flows or the numbers when it comes to stuff with representation. Right. Because um, <clears throat> I'm more of a practicing attorney, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm just doing my specific thing. Right. Um, but I know what you're talking about. Wow. Although I don't consider it, you know, I know. to be honest with you, Rob. Yeah, I get it. I don't consider that to be a, a an accomplishment or anything, if you know what I mean. For you, right? I, the fact that you, the fact that there is such a small amount of you, right? You don't, you you just do what you do, right? I just do it. Hey Amen. I, I get it. I wanted to get the degree and keep it moving. I understand. <laughs> so you can do the work. Yeah, it's about the business aspect. You know, the only reason I went to law school is because I considered the legal degree the verse, the most versatile degree there is. Okay. Because I saw lawyers in every walk of life. Absolutely. So I looked at it like, well, if you get a legal degree, you can pretty much be involved with anything you want to. 
one thing I run across is the amount of lawyers or people who have a legal background that are involved in politics. That's true. Have you ever thought about that at all? I have thought about it, and it's fun. I've, I've only thought about it from the context of if I move back to Flint. That's actually the only way that I saw that ever okay. happening. Why? Because that's just something that I would want to do in my hometown for whatever mm-hmm. reason. I don't know why, wow. but that's where I feel, I guess, most connected, most grounded still. Because I wouldn't, I wouldn't be involved with polit- in politics in Detroit. Right. Um, but Flint, I know so many people, and there's so many people there that I care about that. That's something that I would consider. Wow. So, so, but now you are back, primarily practicing in the realm of entertainment. Yes, sir. Law. What do you, what do you consider like the key competencies that you use the most when it comes to supporting clients? When it, like, what areas of entertainment law do you encounter the most requiring your involvement? You know, now it's it's funny. 20 years ago, <clears throat> it was a little, it was a more of a, a, a standard practice, an MO about it, because all of the industries were standard, they were structured, and it was a way to do things. <clears throat> but once you started, once you added e-commerce and you added digital currency and, and digital assets and digital um, access, Uh, multimedia and people being able to set up on their own and create independent situations without a lot of middlemen, then open the door to a lot of different things. So what I'm saying that to say, when you say competencies in in terms of, you know, what you're adding to the clients or you're performing for the client, it depends on their situation, but it may be advising them on how their intellectual property can be used for particular things, or it could be me sitting back and I'm just helping them make sure their agreements are structured clean with the intellectual property that they are moving back and forth, whether they're selling it, whether they're acquiring it, what they're gonna do with the use. I'm advising them about their agreements, their rights, um, and Depending on your situation, you know, some clients, they move in business where you're talking to them maybe a couple of times a month. So some clients, you might talk to them a couple of times a year. You know what I mean? So it depends on the need. Um, we've had conversations recently about law mm-hmm. on a macro level uh, in America. And we talked about like there really being two different modes of law in terms of the way that they operate in our country. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that because we we had conversations about you know potential next steps in music and this that and the third. And yes, you, one of the things that I'll never forget that you said is the fact that law is designed to keep people out of the game. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me more about that. This is this was my perception of, of law. Absolutely. You know, I got into law because of the versatility of the degree. Right. But I also wanted to learn about, and this is just me being blunt. Please. That's why we here. <laughs> what you what, what you thought? 
I specifically wanted to learn how it was possible to come gangster in an entire country from the current inhabitants. Okay. I actually wanted to learn how it was law, how it was actually legal in order to do that. Because I was completely curious. So, you know, that's when I... And so I had that in my mind going into law school. I wanted to learn how it was possible to do that type of thing mm-hmm. from a standard, a standard-based human societal governing foundation, how you had the authority to do it, if you know what I mean. Right. How you had the actual sovereignty to do that. So I was curious about that. Um my bad, I lost the question. You asked me a question about why is it how is law designed to keep certain people out? So, so I, I mentioned that because I was wondering how they how it was used to be gangsters. Right, <laughs> right. That's what that is. So, okay. So it is used in the same way to control people's access to information. It's used to control people control people's access to assets and wealth, mm-hmm. like. In the way that the American and not you know certain things that the way that the society is set up from my perspective, government and politics, politics is business. Politics is business, and business controls government. Right. Even though it's 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 written as government controls business. So when I say that it's set up for people to be excluded. It's because the businesses are set, are controlling what happens within the government structure. So because they're controlling what happens within the government structure, the businesses are going to make sure that certain things are going to stay in their favor, like labor laws, for example, consumer laws, tax laws, insurance laws. All of the laws are going to be set up to make sure that that gap is maintained. So that's that's all I meant by it. it's an exclusionary thing that's used because you know most of most of the politicians, like you said, they're, they're lawyers. lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you work with musicians, you yes, work sir. with publishing companies, you work with people across the spectrum of music. Um, what do you find to be things that you wish? And this is a pretty standard question, but what are yes, what are things that you find? you wish more people knew about the interaction between law and entertainment. Even though that's why you get, that's how you getting paid. Yes, sir. So them not knowing is beneficial to you. Let me say this. You know what I'm saying? Let me say this. They have greater rights than they think. And it's, it's simpler than it's constructed. It's constructed to be confusing. But it's, it's it's bottom line. It's it's a bottom line to the fact that you own what you create until you give it away or sell it or rent it or lease it or license it. But you own it. And you don't have to give it away. You can create situations where you're still able to exploit without having to give it away for nothing or for pennies on a dollar. And it's easier than it sounds, but it's like we, oh man, that's a whole nother conversation. Because hey. we talking about 
the day that the music died. Okay. It's like read. Go ahead. You should read. We here. Give me the. Okay, it's a book called "The Day the Music Died" that all of us should read. Yes, sir. I don't want to say that's the actual. That sounds like the title, but it may not be the actual title. But it's something like "The Day That the Music Died." Okay. Um, What's the premise? What's the basic premise? It talked about how the music business developed, and how it developed in a way that was completely controlling of what the artists can do. On purpose, like it was, it's, it's really, it was almost like a bi- biographical book um, by, and I don't remember the guy who wrote it, mm-hmm. but he was writing it from a, you know, an industry insider's perspective, talking about how the music industry developed. And he was, this is a guy that was in it for 30 years. But, um, mm-hmm. and the funny part about that is, I tried to find that book, I read it maybe 10, 15 years ago. Okay. I tried to find the book a couple of years ago and I could not find it online. It kind of threw me off. The 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 day the music died, what keeps coming up to me is it's referring to the day that Buddy Holly and Richie Valens and them died in a plane crash. But yeah. I think you're talking about something different. Oh no, I'm definitely talking about something different. I'm yeah. talking about an actual book. So it's an actual book. Amplify Fellowship, which we started, mm-hmm. partnership between Grove and Leon, mm-hmm. started to provide Black musicians with the ability to create music in an unfettered way and be hands-off of publishing all of that stuff. Gotcha. But because I felt as though it was just as liberatory to give them the ability to create the music and support that as it would be even more so, it would be even more so liberatory to let them keep and maintain 100% protection and ownership of their music. Gotcha. So, it seems to me like every situation we encounter, be it fictional or be it um, realistic, we see it in biopics, Mm -hmm. biopics, I guess people call it. Mm -hmm. We saw it in Ray. We saw it in Five Heartbeats. Mm-hmm. We saw it in The Temptations. There's always a predatory perspective that involves kind of like a cabal of yeah. lawyers, accountants, marketing people, hey. this, that, and the third. And go ahead. I'm Who sorry. What's my man name in the the Five Heartbeats? The red, the red, the redhead dude. <laughs> my bad. My Big bad. red. Yeah, Big. My man. Go ahead. Big Red was a gangster. Right, right, right. Uh-huh. Big Red was a gangster. I yeah. was I was watching um I was watching the Biggie documentary earlier today okay. uh, on I've Netflix. Been, I've been seeing that on my thing. I haven't And I look at Puffy. Mm-hmm. And Puffy is refined. Mm-hmm. Like clean cut. Mm-hmm. You know, he has an electric personality. Mm-hmm. But in order for him to get to where he is. He had to be a predator. He had to be an apex predator to a degree. Mm-hmm. And he learned that from Andre Harrell. Mm-hmm. So, as an artist, how does an artist protect themselves? Themselves. How do they protect themselves? Can they protect them? And, and they can protect themselves by not blowing up. 
<laughs> That's funny. That's <clears throat> the only way that it... That's funny. You know what I'm saying? Because blowing up is predicated by getting in bed with that. No question. I mean, the, the bottom line is at some point, if, if that's what you're interested in doing, and if you reach the level where you get you you get the attention of major labels or a major publisher or a major promoter or record label, you know what I mean? Like Bad Boy back in the 90s, 2000s or whatever. <clears throat> if you get their attention, the, the choice is going to be on you whether or not you're willing to sacrifice. Give up something. You got to give up something. You're right. going to give up some months, some rights to your to your stuff in order to join a platform that's going to make you an instant. Right. On paper, it's right. going to make you an instant success. Right. Although the game is still on paper. The game is still on paper because the paper says what they can take from you what they can take back from you before you get paid. So the paper still rules the day Absolutely. at the end of the day. So perfect example. <clears throat> 1995. Mm-hmm. Tupac Shakur is in prison. Suge Knight, some way, shape, or fashion, is in communication with Tupac. Mm-hmm. I think about it and I wonder... What did Tupac have to give up to get out of jail? Gotcha. To get paid or to get that, that whatever deal that got made, mm-hmm. what did he have to give up to get out of jail? And it makes me think about this difference between Machiavelli mm-hmm. and All Eyes on Me. Mm-hmm. He gets out of jail. Mm-hmm. He does a double album. He comes right back between August 1st and August 8th, 1996, and does Machiavelli. Mm -hmm. So before we get into that, though, I want you to answer this question and think about this. Yes, sir. If it wasn't for Machiavelli, blank. If it wasn't for that album, what might be different about music in your mind? You said... What might be different about music? Yes. Let me say this. <laughs> it's a possibility in my mind, because you know, I'm trained to consider all possibilities. Absolutely. So in my mind, it's a possibility that Tupac will still be alive. Oh <laughs> I could I can see that, to be honest with you. So Follow me down this down this this rabbit hole, and let me see if I can figure out why. Gotcha. It goes back to all eyes. On, okay, so Machiavelli came out November fifth, nineteen ninety six. In March of nineteen ninety six is when All Eyes on Me came out. Gotcha. So Tupac was one of the only Led Zeppelin, DMX, Jay Z, Garth Brooks, System of a Down. The only people who have had two albums go number one in the same year. Mm-hmm. There was somebody who had three albums go number one the same year. Oh, wow. I don't remember. Wow. But um, I think it was posthumous, though. But okay. no, it might gotcha. have been like Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson or something. He comes out. He makes a record with the hottest people in the game. 
Dre, Dog Pound, it's Death Row, it's yeah. Flashy, it's Celebratory, he out of jail. California Love. This, that, and the third. Yes, sir. And then he go back in the studio and he makes what I consider the true follow-up to me against the world. I agree with that too. I felt like Machiavelli was a Tupac album, whereas All, All Eyes on Me was a Death Row album. That's correct. I agree with that 100%. Um, I think, and you can tell me if I'm if I'm wrong, What? but before I go into that, do you think that kind of, the fact that he did that is why you saying that? <sighs> to me, the, the fact that that happened like it played out the way that it did, it leads me to wonder the reasoning behind why somebody would murder him like that. Because it wasn't random. You don't murder somebody like Tupac randomly. It wasn't a, you know, you know what I'm saying? It was a hit. It was a hit in some type of way. So to hit somebody public that's public like that, you have to have a, a pretty legitimate fucking reason to do that. So if it ain't about, uh, so, and you know, it's like the general American, you follow the money at some point. You got to look yeah. at the money. You know what I mean? And it could be a simple thing like he was about to bounce because he had fulfilled his obligation that he made to them and before he could go on his own. And then, but you're right from the standpoint of the content itself, that was Tupac. Yeah. Yeah. All Eyes on Me was a was a pop. Was more more pop. It was it was more for the music industry. Yes. But Machiavelli was about the artistry. That yes. was about writing and and informing and expressing. So Machiavelli, what was you doing in 1996, by the way? Was you in, in law school? I was in law school from '95 to '98. So okay. I was fresh in the Machiavelli is the eeriest hip hop album of all time because of the context. Gotcha. You could, you know, you got other, you know, people who was more graphic and that's true. But because of the context, I remember when you say eerie, what do you mean? Just to, just so I there was a, I was right across the street Mm -hmm. at school. Tupac died September 1996. This gotcha. album comes out two gotcha. months later. That's why you said the eerie part. Because of the timing of it and the content, too. I, we right. know I what you on that. We knew, or we know what we know, even at that time, <laughs> to say it takes time during that time to record an album, mix an album, master an album, market an album. Yep. So we knew that it, the process had probably been completed before he died. Yep. When you listen to a song like Hail Mary, that's creepy. I feel you. No, there no, was, you said it right. Um, I understand why you're saying eerie. Now, so. now the <laughs> eeriest album of all time is an album by a guy named The Caretaker mm. called Everywhere at the End of Time. It's an album about the six stages of dementia. Mm. That's a whole different ball Type of, of creepiness. Gotcha, gotcha. But people used but, to say that about Biggie, too. His last... Ready, his last, Life After Death? Both of them. Ready to Die and but, Life After Death. See, anyway, it, I don't want to get off topic. But, but, but that's a good point, I though. Agree with you. Because both of them kind of had that same dynamic yeah. involved. Yeah. But Life After Death was more All Eyes on Me than it was Machiavelli. Agreed. 
And no, it no was question. life no after question. death is its own conversation. Oh, this that's a uh, f- I man. completely agree. That's a huge record. That's one yeah. of the biggest records of all time to it me. Is. It is. I agree with that too. Um, yeah. I listened to interviews with the engineers, mm-hmm. and that's why I know this album had the reason I call it eerie is because this album had more lore about it, like folklore. Than any album, any okay. rap album I know of, like Suge Shot. Gotcha. The engineer was like, it ain't that. Gotcha. We got background sound effects, kids playing on the playground, gotcha. a crowd talking, Suge Shot, that's not real. Um, all these conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Pac living in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Yep. Pac living in Cuba. Yep, we heard that one. Um, <laughs> the guy who played Tupac and All Eyes on Me, mm-hmm. his daddy produced Toss It Up. Mm-hmm. All of these weird things, like one part said in when he got cremated, the day after his shooting, Suge Knight paid $3 million in order for Tupac to be cremated the day after he died. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And then... Tupac's body was listed on the cremator's report as being six feet tall and 215 pounds while his driver's license... You know Pac wasn't six feet. Gotcha. We know Pac (laughs) was. Pac was like 5'10 or something like that. All of that stuff. And then all the number stuff, this, that, and third. Yes, sir. Um, When you listen to the In the Hail Mary and he like talking before Toss It Up, come on, you hear like like this, this chanting... This, if you pay attention and you listen to it, mm-hmm. you hear this chanting, all of this talk about, um, you know, he had records that he had recorded talking about his only fear of death was coming back reincarnated. Mm-hmm. Over and over and over and over and over. Mm-hmm. So, you know, who knows whether or not that's the case. But it is one of the eeriest albums of all time. Um, again, All Eyes on Me was a death row album. This was a Tupac album. One of the things that I walked away from listening to it, because I listen, I listened to these albums after all this time. Mm-hmm. Then I started doing research. Now I listen to it again. Gotcha. And I found out in terms of the mix of the album, how many mistakes it was. Okay. Like drums where, you know, drums might have been caught and clipped at the wrong place in this that, gotcha. third. Gotcha. And what I what I what I found out was this album was recorded in seven days. It was absolutely recorded in seven days. And his perspective during while it was being done was let the engineers deal with all that. I'm just going to record it gotcha. and move on and move on. Because because they don't put this on it, I don't believe anymore, but didn't it first say seven-day theory? It is well, called the seven-day so theory. So that, that's the actual name of it. Okay. Yeah, it's called okay. Don Columinati, the seven-day theory. Sometimes they leave off the seven-day theory. Because in the hood, it's Machiavelli. Right. That's all you ever need right. to call right. it. You right. know what right. I'm saying? Right. Yeah. So... Um, I think I knew that about the it was recorded in seven days. Too. Tupac played the keys himself on bomb first. That oh, that's that. why it's so badly out of key. <laughs> that's funny. It's badly out of key. <laughs> right. He was like, "No, nah, keep it, right, keep right, it." Right. And you know what Pac said in the studio went right. But the center of the record is blasphemy hmm. for me. It's gotcha. not. It's not in the center of the record. Gotcha. But I think when you consider the cover. Mm-hmm. When you consider the ideology involved, it's one of I, my favorite songs. It is. 
It, it's one of mine too. Um, I think it challenges concepts about control, mm-hmm. fate versus free will. Like we've been given an image of what motivates us to act and be a certain way, mm-hmm. while that image is false. It's funny you mention that, like Go, that, yeah. because he challenged hypocrisy. Yes, he was a he was a challenger of hypocrisy, <laughs> and that's why, like, I didn't. And I still don't necessarily like the, the thug life move that he made. Yeah. Because I thought it could be misinterpreted, you know, not by the outside world, but by our folk, by our young men. So I I wasn't sure about that. But to me, that was just him throwing the hypocrisy back in the face of it and turn it into, trying to turn it into something different. Right. Um, because he challenged hypocrisy. That's why that's what blasphemy sounds like, and that's what the words meant, or that's what I heard from the words. Again, uh, again, and yeah, right. And thug life was about, but when you think about thug life, thug life was a matter of control. Mm-hmm. I'm taking control over my situation. I'm taking control over my environment. Over over the image that that you're. Yes, yeah, that's what it was about to him. Right. And I'm taking if, control of the thug meant, image, and I want to turn it into turn it into whatever it was going to turn into. But he was willing to lash out at people that didn't believe the same thing, whether they was black or not. Oh, that's no question. You know what I'm saying? I mean, clearly by the end of the album, you know. um, I felt like in listening to the song and looking at the lyrics, it was like African-Americans have a specific relationship with God Mm -hmm. and spirituality Mm -hmm. that permeates everything that we do. Correct. Whether what no matter what your scale is of your devotion to the organization that is religion, I understand. God is still at the foundation of all of it. Correct. And it seemed like he was saying, God, God has power, but people have corrupted our sightline towards God. That's correct. Um I agree with that. When he said, I got advice from my father, all he told me was this, nigga, get off your ass if you plan to be rich. So it's this concept of acquisition. That's what God wants us to do is to acquire and control. Even going back to the Garden of Eden. Yes, sir. Um, he went in, went, went on to say, it seemed a little unimportant. Still talking about his father. Mm-hmm. It seemed a little unimportant when he told me, I smile, picture jewels being handed to an innocent child. Like how we don't have the full understanding of, of our destiny. And we don't truly understand it until it may be after the fact. Hmm. Until it's manifested to us. Absolutely. Now, Papa ain't around. So I got to recall or come to grips with being written on my enemy's walls. None of that is by accident, G. That's correct. Um, <laughs> When the reggae part, the reggae, think about it. I, I got you tripping. The reggae part says this. We never really think about what the, you know, the reggae part in the hook. They say, enough of them that steal in the name of the Lord. Them a tell enough lie. They'll tell enough lies, but holding a bird in the cloud. Using the name of the Lord in vain while the people in the ghetto feel enough pain. It's the same thing. Tell me I ain't got a son, nigga, mama a virgin. So the image of the black Madonna. 
right? Um, the Black Madonna appeared throughout European history. People tried to say, oh, it was a result of the materials the Madonna was making, not an agent. No, no, no. <laughs> right. None of that. None know, of that is we true. We know much better than that now. But go um, ahead. The fact that the darker the soil, the more fertile it is. Mm. Listen to this. He said, Babylon, beware. Coming for the Pharaoh's kids. Retaliation. Making legends off the shit we did. Who was the Pharaoh? America. I mean, what was the role of the Pharaoh in the Bible? And who was the Pharaoh's kids? The kids of America. The really white kids. Making legends. Tupac is a legend because of white people. He's been able to, to he's been able to continue to permeate popular culture because of white people. What do you mean by because of white people? Because this is where I looked at that. Um, <clears throat> Hip-hop grew into white communities. Let, let me say this. Tupac spoke to people's spirit. True. So when you can talk to somebody's spirit, it don't matter what color they are. True. You're going to connect with them. True. To True. me, that was one of the differences between somebody like him and other artists that maybe got into the music because they wanted to get paid or they wanted to live a better life or, you know, they thought this or they thought that or they just wanted to, you know what I mean? Yeah. Be in the music business. But I don't... He had a different type of... To me, he had a different type of desire that wasn't just about being in the music business. True. To me, he was more of an artist like that. So his impact is going to be broader. So... I hear you. So I think he would have had an impact regardless. So I, so I don't say he he had the impact because of white people. I just think he was the type of spirit that went that far to influence more than just black True. people. But, I, I mean? but I do think the ethos that came along with Tupac mm -hmm. had an influence over all kinds of people. That's true. And I think that That's is true. part of what has created this legend about who Tupac was. That's true. So again, when That's he's true. talking, when he's talking about the Pharaoh's kids, I'm mm -hmm. thinking about the kids of America. No, I I agree with your analysis of the lyrics, okay. though. Yes, I, so I okay. definitely agree with that. That's what that means. Mama, tell me, am I wrong? Yeah. Is God just another cop? What did he say? Waiting to beat my ass, beat my if, ass I if I don't go pop. Just think about. It. I mean, it, in this in this situation, in this cold. In, I mean, it, at this time, it's still timeless. Yes. Um. So yeah, it was kind of the center. Blasphemy was the kind of center of this project. I feel you on that. I I liked I liked white man's world. I still like I, white man's world. And absolutely. Then, but. A song that I and I was surprised, but "Hold Your Head" was a is a classic to me. It's yes, a, it's one of those that when I play it, I keep playing it. You know what "Hold Your Head" is about? Oh yeah, it's about prison. Yeah, that's a term yeah. that says that that means no matter what situation it you you in, maintain mm -hmm. your focus. Mm -hmm. Um. I like when he said, if daytime is for suckers, then tonight we breathe. Uh -huh. 
Um, I liked his energy. I liked the energy of that song. Hold your head. The song just, it's inspirational to me. Like that was one of my workout songs. When I used to listen to music specifically to work out, that was one of the songs. Right. Um, Cause I didn't just take it to be about, I know it was about prison, prison life and talking to, you know, cats that he may have been locked up with and right. he knew, but to me the, the message spread out into the into your life period it holds your head about a lot of stuff you know because one of, to me one of his best lines ever was to all MCs that follow me protect your essence that was one of his best lines to me that's why smile is a classic to me right so many classic Tupac records that spoke to the possibilities yes, sir. that MCs have to inspire. Yes, sir. And he wasn't afraid to talk about it either. And he wasn't, like we talked about before we started, he wasn't afraid to talk about the fact that he knew that he was risking his life right. by playing the role he was playing. Right. And I wasn't, you, none of us was there when Pac died. Mm-hmm. But you would have to imagine that there was a piece, like, to a degree. Mm-hmm. Like, because I feel like <clears throat> in order to be able to talk about your own mortality to the degree that you did, there had to be some kind of, he was dealing with something. He was the, there was internal pressures that he had no and demons that he had. No question about it. He was, he was, man. Because <clears throat> at the end of the day, I mean, Pac started really as a revolutionary rapper. Mm-hmm. That's how he started. He, his, his stuff was more revolutionary. And I don't want to say, you know, take over the world type revolutionary, no. but it was it was more it was from the energy and spirit of the of the Black Panthers to me. Right. The stuff that he was saying. This Brenda's had a baby and all that type of stuff. He was more about social. He talked about social issues way more. When he got into the music business, though, because of his popularity, his growing popularity, and when he got immersed in the music business, the music business is what that's how you ended up with a situation like all eyes on me right. because he was he was immersed in the music business and you know what was he locked up for sexual assault he was locked up for a sexual assault man yeah I don't, I don't want to talk about that type of stuff with all the other stuff that's happened over the last couple of years right with sexual assault but right. he was locked up for like mike tyson you know what i mean like not you know i'm not People business is they business, but right. we not stupid, if you know what I mean. And we know the number of groupies that are in music. So to talk about somebody sexually assaulting somebody is just I don't know. I, I don't want to talk about that type of right. Stuff. I get it. I get but, it. But um um The stuff that he was dealing with, I, I thought he felt he was under attack, to be honest with you. Right. He knew he was under attack. 
I mean, right. he shot the cops. He didn't shoot the undercover cops. Yeah, in, yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. was that, Atlanta or yeah, something? that was in Atlanta. That was I mean, a different he, Atlanta, too. Yeah, but he, he knew that, you know, yeah. he, he knew that they was owning because of what he was about. So... I don't want to say they. I just mean... I, I understand you know, what you mean. So, I think... Death around the corner. What did he say? He, right. he said that. Right, right. So, I think about how... Um, if if hip-hop was a high school, per se, mm-hmm. just because that's the context through which I, I see a lot of stuff. Yes, Tupac sir. was the kid that was when he was younger. He was in all the plays. He was... You know, very creative, this, that, and the third, did really well in school. Mm-hmm. And then something happened that kind of triggered this big shift in the way that he saw things. And I remember kids I saw, the, I went to high school with that was like that. Mm-hmm. You you coming up with them, and then there's some kind of trauma mm-hmm. that they experience that changes their perspective. Yeah. And I think Machiavelli was Tupac's attempt to kind of reclaim who he was, although he didn't deal, he still had not done, dealt with the emotions involved, which manifested itself through bomb first. But let me say, let me say this. That was the most angry thing because ever, you know, one of the things that I really loved about Machiavelli was the ad libs. Look at De La Soul. (laughs) I I love the ad libs. (laughs) In Machiavelli. I love the ad libs in White Man's World and Holds Your Head and Blasphemy. I like the ad libs in Hail Mary. I like the ad libs. The ad libs is to me what you just talked about. Like that was him expressing his other stuff in between the music was the ad libs. Purge. So that's that's part of the one of the things. That's one of the reasons why I picked it. Yeah. Is because the ad libs spoke differently than a lot of the other stuff. Um, even though, you know, because I didn't really consider Tupac lyrical, even though I liked his lyrics. I right. didn't really consider him lyrical. I just liked the power of his words and I liked the power of his expression. Right. Um, um, but the ad, his ad-libs were powerful to me. He had some of the most powerful ad-libs. I think he might have the most powerful ad-libs that I've heard. Machiavelli was an experience, and it was an experience for me growing up as a man and experience and growing in my own consciousness mm. um, as a college student. Yes, sir. Um, in terms of the application of, okay, you developing all this new consciousness about things that are going on around you, mm-hmm. what does it take to apply it? Yes, sir. And it takes passion. And that's what this was about. Yes, sir. Against all odds. Um, he was lashing out. I agree. He was lashing out. And, you know, there's rumors. <laughs> there's, it's been said that when people heard their name on this album, that mm. they cried. Oh, wow. I ain't going to say no names. Because gotcha. I love everybody. And gotcha. this, ain't that type of, this ain't that type of podcast. But... What I will say is, I think that we all can take away the fact that he tried to reclaim who he was because he. I think that he knew things was getting out of control, yeah. but he still had some business to take care of along the way. I, I don't think he lost who he was, though. 
I don't think he lost who he was. I think his image had got out of control. Maybe we lost who he was. I think the image, like it's image in, in, in entertainment, image is a is a fragile thing, man. It, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know how they say you be built up and then torn down so easily because image is is fragile. So right. sometimes the image that you have in the world can get out of control. And and it's based in and a lot of times it can get out to the out of control to the point where it doesn't even represent who the actual person is. Right. So it's just based on the image, people's perception and how they deal and interact with a particular person. Just so sometimes the image can get out of control. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he lost who he was. I, I don't think he lost who he was. He was too strong. We we can only speculate on he was too strong with spirit. We can only speculate on what Pac would be doing. Now, mm-hmm. what do you think? Like, what do you think he would? What do you think he'd be doing right now? Pac would be fifty this year. It's hard for me to even speculate about yeah. stuff like that because we really have no idea. Yeah. Because even if he didn't get killed when he got killed, he could have been killed a year later in a car accident. Absolutely. You know what I mean? That's true. Like, That's true. The what ifs would kill us. The right, what ifs the would, would, would rack our brains. But what we do know is that he was committed to he was committed to it. And he was committed to his people. He was committed to his people. I think if there was no Machiavelli, there would be no Master P. Hmm. I mean, there may be a Master P, but he wouldn't be Master P. Master P. There was a lot of anguish after Pac died. That's true. And people was reaching and looking for that energy. Yeah. And I think he kind of took, you know, took heed to that. Gotcha. Not by himself, but amongst, you know, I think all of, there might not have been a DMX. Gotcha. To that degree. Gotcha. Gotcha. But. I gotcha. Yes, sir. Um, This is another, <clears throat> excuse me. This is another project that. You can go back, you can revisit, you can listen to and try to experience it as a narrative as a as opposed to a group of songs. Right. When you look at it as a narrative or a study in character, it feels different. Right. So we want to thank A.G. Harris for coming through today. We got to have you back. Thank you, sir. We didn't really get a chance to talk about your poetry. Oh, it's all good. You got any plugs for us? Anything you want to plug? Oh no, just the Instagram page, Ajaha underscore Sarah, S I R R A H. Absolutely. And how can people can people communicate you with you about your services? Um, Alfred G Harris five at Gmail. Alfred, A L F O R D G Harris five at Gmail dot com. Yes, sir. Um, we want everybody to like, share, and subscribe no matter where you're hearing this uh, or seeing this. Uh, we want to thank our sponsors. Again, Leon Speakers Grow Studios, Amplify Fellowship, Dirty Avenue Clothing, edigging.com. Um, and yeah, until we want to thank Max, Mind State Marketing. So uh, until next time, this is, this is me. This is Tupac. This is Machiavelli. Support the artists and the artisans around you. Because if the music stops, everything does. Thank you.